Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-28. Wait, no, that's wrong. Hello and welcome to episode 4-428 of the Run Run Live podcast. So here we are in the apocalypse. How's everybody doing? These are interesting times. So that's one of those tricks of modern English. Whenever we don't want to say bad, we say interesting. Like somehow we're, you know, we're just observers in this whole soup of weirdness. Took me until today, Sunday, to get this show out, not because I don't have time, not because I don't have ideas and content, not because I have technical issues. No, I just lack the basic motivation over the last couple of days. Been watching a lot of low-quality TV, eating poorly, playing some of my uh, online zombie game, you know, super adult and productive. But it's okay, take a day or two off. But don't let these doldrums turn into patterns or new habits. Now is actually a great time to start new habits. It's an excellent way to to kick yourself out of that malaise. Do a fixed program like a 10-day XYZ challenge, you know, 10-day meditation challenge, 20-day plank challenge, daily journaling challenge. That'll give you some structure to hang your uh, hang your your flesh on, so to speak. So I've kicked off a couple new projects this week. First is that I'm reading The Princess Bride into audio for 20 to 30 minutes every day, and I'm posting it on my website. And I figured if I could read to my kids when they were little, then I can read to everyone's kids. And you can find the current nine reading sessions on my website under a post called Storytime. It's video, too. It's video and audio, me reading. So, yeah, that's my gift to you. If you want to listen to it, that's great. If not, that's great, too. I also got asked just this week by some folks over in the uh, Chicago Area Running Association, some folks affiliated with that, to participate in a group storytelling event next week. And that'll be a live Zoom meeting. I think it's Wednesday night next week. If I get links, I'll share them with you. And that'll be fun. And my work, believe it or not, my work life is super busy. I'm new at this job and I'm getting to that point where I'm like two months in and I'm supposed to know stuff and I don't. And it's super, super stressful. 
my training has stepped back to just some easy runs. Although I did do one crazy HIT workout this week. HIT. High intensity training workouts. That's something you can do from your house, by the way. These are very appropriate for the apocalypse. <laughs> Good training for the apocalypse. So you can look them up online or just make them up on your own. The basic form is a short sprint followed by some high-intensity exercises. For example, we'll just make one up. Go out your front door, sprint 100 meters out and back, hard as you can, then drop and do 10 fast push-ups, 10 fast crunches, 5 pull-ups, then sprint again, do 3 more exercises, sprint again. You get the basic form. And believe it or not, you will be gasping like a fish out of water. Definitely a change in pace for me, who's only been doing mostly easy trail runs. I was sore. I'm still sore, and it's like three days later, which makes me think I got to work on my diet and some other things because I should not still be sore three days later from that one workout that I didn't even finish. Uh, The entire world is marching through the woods behind my house these days. Yeah, I know they're bored. But I feel a bit violated. You know, Buddy and I, you've been with us. You know Buddy and I cut those trails 20 years ago. And now I'm shoulder to shoulder with the hoi polloi in my happy place. I have to go out at dawn if I want some peace. Or, or, or nighttime. Or in the pouring rain. Those are the good times. Those are no, no one's out there except me. Me and my dog. We're still happy. We can run the dark. We can run the rain. Not a problem. And today we have a great interview with old friend and running journalist, Matt Fitzgerald, who you all know. We've talked to Matt before, but he's publishing a new book this month called Running the Dream, where he executes this fantasy that we all have, this adult fantasy. No, not not that one, the other one. He lives and trains as a professional with a professional running team for training for a race. And it's a great read and a real page turner and gets my thumbs up if that's worth anything. And in section one, I will give you a Facebook Q&A I did, which may or may not be useful. Uh, This is, I asked a very simple question. Ask me a question about running. It's all I said. And I got about 90 responses. Some of them fun, some not. So I sorted through those and sorted a few out for you. Uh, Section two, you lucky devils. I have a follow-up apocalypse story from the same universe that I created last episode. I've been having fun with this and thinking about it a lot. So maybe this is telling me this is the book I was looking for. You know, I haven't written a book in four or five years. So maybe this is the book that's uh, yearning to get out. So I had a nice outing with Ollie Friday night, a couple days ago. Coach gave me a day off on the schedule and I was super sore from that HIT workout on Thursday. So I figured... I'd go out late. And the day, it just got away from me from the beginning. From the start, I was behind. End of the week, all that stuff piles up, right? The dog woke me up early, like 5.30. And after I let him out to pee, I laid down the couch. And he jumped up on the back of the couch, all he did. And he fell asleep sort of sitting on me. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up and it's 7.30 and I've missed my 7 o'clock call. So I took Ollie for a walk, <laughs> went back to uh, went back to work on all my back-to-back calls and deadlines, feeling pretty behind schedule and unmotivated. But I made sure to drop that two-hour run. You know, it's an hour and 20 minutes, so total is about two hours after I get changed and sort everything out. 
So I dropped that on my calendar, on my work calendar. I said, run with Ollie, headlamp run with Ollie, 6.30 p.m. And uh, the day one, as you would expect, I didn't even come close to completing everything that was due or catching up. But at 6.30, I grabbed my new headlamp and I grabbed Ollie and we headed into the woods. So technically, the sun sets around 7 o'clock right now. But as a trail runner, you start to understand the relationship between sunset, weather, and having enough light to see the trail. And it was that day was a beautiful, clear, sunny day. Without the cloud cover, you get at least another 30 minutes or so of residual light after the sun sets. Ollie and I set out into the woods. The melt is on now in New England, so there's lots of mud to deal with. It's pretty soft. But there's a spot out on the trail from us, my standard loop. I do about seven and a half miles, seven to seven and a half miles with Ollie. That's an hour and 20 minutes for me in the soft uh, in the soft trails. And there's this point about three miles out where we're, we're running along the edge of the pond. And on one side of the trail, there's the remnants of a cottage. And on the other side, there's a break in the bushes where the beach used to be for this cottage. And I, I set my sights on getting to this spot before the sun was totally gone so I could get a photo. And the reason is, is I've been taking photos. I've been stopping in the same place to take the same photo to mark the passing of the days and the seasons. And I've been doing this for a couple of months. And I stand on this same stone and I frame the same tree and I get the same photo. And I wasn't sure if this one would come out because it was pretty dark. The sun had already set about 10 to 15 minutes before, but it came out beautifully. And I arrived right at that point where to continue you'd have to switch the headlamp on. And it's a hauntingly beautiful shot. You can see it on my Facebook and my Instagram. It's a shot from that moment. That peaceful glow of a setting sun. That slight ripple from the paddling of unseen ducks in the shadow. The water black and smooth. The tree starkly silhouetted against it all. That moment of peace and beauty was there whether or not my work got done. That beauty was there, whether or not the apocalypse raged. That beauty and peace is still there. I just wasn't looking for it. What are you focused on? Because your beauty and peace is still there. Everything else is just made up. Own your focus. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Ask me a question about running. So I asked a simple question on Facebook, and I got a slew of responses. Some useful, some amusing. The first one was from our friend Mark Sands, Mark Robert Sands. And he said, interesting thought. In your opinion, is this pandemic going to create a second running boom out of necessity? Non-runners can't work out in gyms, and people who are already runners now have most likely zero chance of racing in 2019. Both of this makes me think so. My response, good question. I definitely saw a lot of folks who looked like they never ran before when I was out driving next to the bike path on the Charles last week in Boston. Seems like the whole world is out. 
The question is whether all these new board runners will sustain the habit or not. And I suppose, like everything else, it'll be a curve, with the one-and-done on one side and the newly discovered love of exercise on the other. But knowing human nature, I'd guess 99% of these people will revert to their norm. Question from my friend Anthony Mavilia, who taught me how to mountain bike. Bang for your buck! The best track workout for an over-the-hill semi-competitive 10K racer. Answer. 1600s. (laughs) You do your last workout about two weeks before the race, and that will be somewhere six to eight miles. So six by one, eight by one, six by 1600, eight by six, somewhere in there, right? And back schedule from there in two or three week waves and do these at your race pace, your target 10K race pace, minus 30 to 45 seconds. Now, you could probably also get away with 800s for a 10K. Like I said, work up to six to eight miles worth of speed work once or twice a week for eight to 12 weeks, and you will crush any 10K or half. Don't believe me? Do it. You'll see. Question. Greg Bonsamino. Hope I'm not butchering your name, Greg. In my mind, I always think Greg Bonacino. <laughs> I don't know. My brain just does that. Do you run with a phone or not? I have run 1,800 plus miles per year for the last eight years without a phone. In fact, part of the reason I love running so much is being away from the phone. I'm not running in the mountains, just suburban streets. Yes, recently my running club is giving me grief. As an old schooler, I'm hoping you can back me up. No phone is better. My answer, it's a personal choice. I think if you always run with a phone, you should should try running without one for a week and vice versa. See how the other half lives. Lean in. You might learn something. Question from my friend Tim Cleary. My close friend Tim Cleary. How you doing, Tim? Which of your many marathons had the most difficult course? And this was an interesting question. My answer. Good question, because most modern marathon courses just aren't difficult by design. Now, if the question is hardest marathon for me, I have battled most at Boston, and I've battled a lot of courses, but I seem to make them harder than they should be. I guess I'll have to seek out some harder courses in retirement, Tim. Maybe you and I can take it on as a project. The world's 10 hardest marathons. Sounds like a great Netflix documentary. What do you think? Question from Eric, Eric Coffin. Chris, is there life beyond plantar fasciitis? Oh, Eric, I feel your pain. Yes, yes, there is. It's a long journey, but you can come out the other end of plantar fasciitis stronger and a better runner. This too shall pass, my friend. This too shall pass. Question, Ginny Stasinski, I'm going with. I have a lot of Slavic friends for some reason. Chris, what will the weather be like for the Marine Corps Marathon 2020? Answer, sunny with a northwest wind of five miles an hour. Question from James Harris, who's trying to be funny, I think. Our friend in, uh, I think he's in Wales, someplace in in, uh, Britain. If you were being chased by an animal, would you rather it be a brown bear or a wolf pack? Please give reasons. So... My answer, for safety reasons, probably a brown bear because they're not that vicious. For intellectual curiosity, I'd love to be chased by a wolf pack just to see how they did it. But I think he meant a grizzly bear because it's the grizzlies that are carnivorous and they'll hunt you down and eat you. 
Question from Brad Harper, who's in my running club. Why do you run? Ha! That question again. And my answer? (laughs) Used to be a journey of discovery. Now it's mostly habit. And another question from one of my other uh, club mates, Kerry. Kerry Ann Monroe Madden. Please share your best one. Best cross-training strength exercises that help you be a better runner. And two, best mobility, flexibility strategies to keep your body moving. So my answer, I do uh, some sort of total body core workout two times a week. And I do a 30-minute yoga, 20 to 30 minute of some sort of yoga two times per week. Uh, You can search my blog for but these core workouts tend to shift around from there's nothing consistent it's always different uh they tend to shift around from arms to core to legs depending on where i am in a cycle the yoga is any beginner yoga for runners and you can search on youtube you can actually search on specific body parts in youtube and find them quite easily you can search yoga for hamstrings yoga for quads and you'll find some yoga for runners Question from John Rumor. And John, for some reason, I always like to uh, to imagine your name is Runmore. Maybe I'm maybe I'm imagining that though. And he asks, does running in the cold weather increase your risk for respiratory viruses? Hmm. Good question. I didn't know the answer. So there's a reason why they're called colds or chills, right? That's because people, you know, in medieval times, believed that's how you get sick. So I got a quote here from uh, some doctor's blog that I kind of liked by Googling it, and it is, piecing the available evidence together, I draw a different conclusion than either traditional wisdom or current medical opinion. One, it is clear that in order to catch a respiratory infection of any type, one must be exposed to the causative organism. Two, if exposed, however, it is more likely that an individual will become sick if he or she has been breathing cold air. And that's from Dr. Green, and the link to that post is in this post. And then Brad Harper again, what's the best way to determine your max heart rate, even if you only have a wrist-based device? Uh, Answer, 5K threshold test. Warm up for 20 minutes, run for 30 minutes as hard as you can, cool down, and regardless of your device, you will see your max heart rate and threshold in that data. Our friend David Michaud, do you think, I'm pronouncing it uh, French, David. I know you're from Quebec, so hope I got that right. Do you think you've run more than 100,000 miles in your lifetime yet? And my answer truly is no, because I've been running for 20 years or so, and let's say I do about, I don't know, 15 to 2,000 1,500 to 2,000 a year. So say 2,000 times 20 is 40K, give or take. And, you know, I didn't start running seriously till I was in my 30s. So I'd say it's more like 50,000 miles. Daniel asks again, why is running a marathon so hard and the half marathon feels easy? Answer, because a half marathon is shorter. Ken Weary asks, what's the best recovery for a calf strain? And my answer is basically, you got to take two weeks off and don't keep testing it. Don't do that thing. Do your yoga, do your stretching, self-massage with your fingers to loosen it up and judge how it's healing. Might consider calf sleeves for those first couple of weeks back training. 
And Daniel asks again, is running twice a day beneficial? And should I do doubles, 60, 60 miles or 70 miles a week? And really, it depends on what you're training for, your age, your ability. I mean, what are you trying to get out of it? I did doubles for ultra training cycles just to get the miles in and the running on tired legs um, experience. But it sounds like he's talking more about road racing. I mean, some of the pros do two workouts a day, but they're up over 100 miles a week. I mean, it's okay sometimes to split a workout into two workouts a day just so you can find the time. But I would defer to your plan and to your coach for all this. So that's it. We had a little fun on Facebook this week. Spending too much time on Facebook. Have a great week. And now for today's featured interview. So Matt Fitzgerald, how are you, my friend? You've had an interesting couple of years here. You've been a sports writer for a long time. You focus a lot on running. And you've written a lot of books, a lot of articles. And the thing about your books that I like is that you've got a good range, right? You're not just doing the how-to stuff. You did the diet one. You did the, the training one. And then, you, you know, you've done some other stuff. And now this latest one, which is coming out when? Cinco de Mayo, my 49th Cinco. birthday. Yeah. By the way, an actual book with paper and ink. <laughs> um, and I started reading it, and I did find it to be a, uh, a page turner, right? That's my intro. So... Give us, give us your 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do. I'm an East Coaster uh, by origin. Grew up in New Hampshire. Been in California for a long time. Uh, started running when I was 11. Um, picked up triathlons in my late 20s and uh, started coaching soon after that. Picked up sports nutrition certification along the way. Some people think I'm a scientist because I cite a lot of science in my writing. I am in no way a scientist. I, I was an English major. I've just, I know just enough science to be dangerous. Um, but yeah, I mean, my dad's a writer and, uh, I, and he was actually running marathons back in the 80s. And uh, I got both the, I guess, the writing interest and the running interest from him. So you could call me a chip off the old block. It's funny uh, when you get you know into middle age, you look back in your life and this isn't true for everyone, but it's true for me. It seems like I've always been on one track. You know, I didn't see the master plan looking forward, but looking back, it almost looks like that. So the um, the topic du jour here is your new book, Running the Dream. You went down to Flagstaff, Arizona and joined the Hoka racing team, the professionals, and trained for them over summer. Just did that thing that we all dream of doing, which is just commit yourself 100%, live there, do all the exercises, do everything you're supposed to do as an experiment of one, see if that actually makes a difference in your running. Yeah. And don't give away the ending. I was never an elite runner. Um, you know, I, I ran in high school. I was, was pretty good. Uh, kind of burned out. Didn't run in college. It's a, a big regret. Got back into it. And, um, you know, I'm one of these people who, you know, I, I definitely had you know, above average talent, but I was nowhere close to elite. And I was fine with that, but um, I still was passionate enough about running that I wanted to see just how far I could take it, you know, within the constraints of, you know, my life. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have a shoe contract or anything like that. You know, a lot of serious competitive amateur runners can relate to this. Like it just, it never quite worked out. I never, you know, despite all I invested in the journey. I felt like I, I always had unfinished business. I never lived up to my potential. For me, a big part of it was that I had a propensity to injury. Um, and then, you know, before I know it, I'm 40 years old, 41, 42, and slowing down despite still, you know, really getting after it with 
the training and, and being smarter with injury prevention. And it was actually, it was, you know, if I, if I've had a midlife crisis, it was triggered by that. Um, just realizing that my last PR had happened um, and that, you know, yeah. that I had never really just, not that I ever expected to go, to go to the Olympics, that my bet, my very best race just was not all that good. Um, and then a weird thing happened. You know, I just went through a period where I started to look at running a different way and just sort of chase adventure. Um, and, you know, I traveled to Kenya and ran a marathon. Um, I ran eight marathons in eight weeks in eight different States, like on a cross country trip. And but in the midst of that process, and now I'm in my mid forties, um, I realized I was healthy and actually starting to, in a way, like turn back the clock. It's amazing what a period of health can do for you. And I started to think, you know what, maybe it's not too late after all. Um, and I also had this idea in my head that as someone who's, who, whose profession is to com communicate, you know, to inspire and educate other runners, a big message I've always tried to get across is like, you shouldn't be limited in how much you put into running based on your perception of your ability level. It, your passion right. should, should determine that. And right. so many runners, you know, I see, you know, they, you know, I'll ask him like, well, why do you only run 30 miles a week? And they're like, well, cause I'm not all that good. Like, so what? <laughs> like, if you love it, you know, a lot of runners, you know, they feel like they don't deserve to go further with it, which is baloney. Um, so yeah, I got no, this like, idea. I, I, I think it's more of a, a mindset, right? We all start with a baseline, with a set point, and you don't realize what you can do. And right. it never really occurs to people everybody that here's here's what you're capable of right yeah. and you don't know that until you get into some structured training um i get this all the time where where people will say you know how do i qualify for boss and i'll say well here's you got to do these mile intervals you know two times a week at these right these awful long runs and this kind of volume and they go i could never do that and then they go and do it and sure enough right there you go they're changed right. You know, it's like breaking the frame of reference is, is the favor you're doing to people. But I, I, the interesting thing about the, the stuff you went through is you've got to do all the things that none of us have time for, right? right. The get enough sleep, the eat well, <laughs> the stretching, you know, having a, um, a physical therapist on call. Yeah. You know, I could use one of those right now. I got a performance that's on fire, right? But I don't have time for that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Right. That's so hard. doing all those things and saying, okay, you know, of all those elements, what do you think had the, you know, the biggest impact on your ability to, to race better? You, you know, I, I, it's so tough to say, cause you know, as you hinted earlier, it wasn't a controlled experiment. It was just me. And I changed a lot of things at once. I mean, you know, when I was here on my own in California, you know, I'm knowledgeable. I've been doing this for a while. I felt like I was sort of, training like a pro, you know, and living like a pro, but only when you're among the actual pros, do you realize, you know, you've been fooling yourself. And, you know, we, we all cut corners, like, you know, like the warmups, just take the warmups that the pros do. They take 45 minutes, you know, like for a lot of people, a three mile jog is an entire workout, you know, for them, that's the, that's part two of their warmup. Part one is like, a, you know, they, everyone arrives at the place where they're running, somewhere gorgeous on trails and Flagstaff and I was, dude. I yeah. before I ran in the same place twice. Uh, and that's actually part of it too. Just being in an awesome environment that makes you want to run, but yeah, everyone shows up, they pull the yoga mats out of their trunks. 
and they do a bunch of mobilizations. That's part one of the warm up. Then they'll jog three miles. It's not like an average runner is incapable of doing these things. Like I didn't do them because I'm like, I just want to get out the door and go. Like, give me the meat of the workout. You know, not all this you know foo foo ancillary stuff. But you know, who knows how much of a difference that stuff makes? But all, all I can tell you is like with making all these change, small changes cumulatively, like I, I seriously started to feel like a different person. You know, yeah. I lost nine pounds. Like I, I didn't know I had nine pounds to lose. It's like, how did this happen? Uh, I just looked different in the mirror. I've got all these veins all over my body just popping out. Um, and I just felt great. It, you know, the, the training really didn't beat me down, I think, because I was doing all these little things to kind of keep my body together. So it's really hard to answer that question and say, oh, you know, here was the number one factor. Um, I think, you know, everything they do, they do for a reason and it all contributes. So these kids that you're running with, the professionals, you know, they're doing 120 plus mile weeks, right? Yep. You know, you were doing some pretty beefy workouts, but I don't think you got up to that. You were doing like 70 or 80, right? Yeah, I think I I peaked at, uh, I had one ninety-one mile week. I might've gotten up a little higher, but I actually got injured halfway through. I was yeah. there for 13 weeks and, you know, I, I, to, I told the coach before I got there, like, I will get injured. I wasn't being pessimistic. I just, you know, I've lived in my body my whole life. And I, I was just letting, putting him on notice. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm fragile. Um, and I was like, I had a few minor things pretty much the whole time. Uh, but I had one major setback halfway through. So, yeah, but still, you know, and, you know, Ben Rosario, the coach of the team, he's no dummy. He, he wasn't, you know, he wanted to succeed with me. So, and he, you know, in point of fact of the, he had a dozen pro runners on the team he didn't give them all exactly the same training too. Yeah. Like all, they're all young, they're all talented, so they can all handle a lot, but they're all different. And that's part of what it means to train like a pro. It doesn't mean automatically running 120 miles per week. It means, you know, training hard, but also individualize your training to your needs and limitations. And so that's what he did with me. He wasn't just going to throw me to the wolves and saying, say, you know, you're going to do exactly, exactly what Stephanie Bruce does, you know, whether it kills you or not, you know, he, I definitely emulated the principles and I did a lot of the exact same workouts they did only slower, but everything was sort of scaled down, you know, to my limits. (laughs) Yeah. I was impressed with the mix of the variety of workouts that he was serving up. Right. A lot of times it's just high volume and high quality, but he had a lot of shorter stuff for, I guess, for leg speed and leg strength and cadence. Yep. Um, And then he had a lot of longer sort of mixed up tempo. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was interesting. He, he threw a lot of variety, more variety than I would expect in a, in a big plan like that. Yeah. And that, you know, that's another one of the things that, you know, is it's the advantage of having a coach, right? You know, if, if you're coaching yourself, not only do you have to do the work, but you also have to do the thinking with, with Ben, Ben being the coach, like he didn't have to worry about doing the physical work. He could just do the thinking for you. And that makes it easier to have, you know, a lot of, you know, variety and just to keep things interesting. Uh, yeah. Use the, the final surge online platform. And it yeah. was a little bit like Christmas. Like I, like it was it would be every, every other Sunday I would look for it. Is my training up yet? Is my training up yet? Cause like there was always something new, like I'd never done before that I could look forward to doing. In yeah. The and like you said, it was all in Flagstaff at altitude in these beautiful places. So even with that short training cycle, it's probably, you know, what, four to five weeks of training, you still built, Whatever it is, whatever that magic sauce is, you built it to be able to comfortably um, run your race. It, it worked. I mean, you know, that's, 
again, it wasn't controlled science, but uh, I mean, clearly the experiment was a success. The climax of the whole thing, you know, the final test to see if all this had actually worked was the Chicago Marathon, which I got to run as an elite, which was just an amazing experience. There was one other, one regular member of the team, Aaron Braun, also ran Chicago, and he, he's a real pro, so obviously he, he was also right there on the start line, you know, on national television. He belonged there, I didn't, um, but... Um, yeah, so I mean, it was it was a hot day in Chicago, and you know, all all kinds of things can go wrong in a marathon. It so happened that it, it did go well for me, but I also knew, bef- you know, come what may, I could have twisted my ankle at eight miles and not finished. Um, yeah, but I knew even before that that it had worked, you know, just because I, I was doing things in training that I I couldn't even believe. Um, right, right, yeah, it felt easy, and that's what I, you know, I the few times that I've been able to bring that kind of fitness into a race, it's, it feels easy. It's just like yeah. magic. It's like yeah. magic. It's, yeah. it's really hard to describe. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I think the other thing with you, you know, looking at your race history, you get in your own head when you're in really, really good shape and ready for a race, you find a way to blow up. Right. Yeah. Um, and being a little injured going into this forced you to hold back and run your race. And that probably was a big positive thing for you right yeah you know it's, it's worth mentioning that you know oh, you know it helped that I had a coach you know because I mean he told me exactly what my race plan was it's not like he's like this domineering control freak but like he he's a good coach and he he and you know Chicago's a, you know completely flat course so there's not a hell of a lot of tactics to it like he knew where I was he, he knew the best way for me to get you know the most out of what to do and I did it so that made it easier to stay out of my own head. And also it's worth mentioning that, you know, when I say I was all in with the pro lifestyle in Flagstaff, I was all in. And I even hired a sports psychologist that I saw while I was there. And that was very helpful too. I had you know, a handful of sessions with her along the way. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, one of the things that you haven't talked about, which I think is really valuable is the aspect of being on a team and the team dynamics themselves and how that's an enabler in a, in a training cycle. Right. And you see that in all of these training programs that a big part of the value is that the team itself. Early on in my time in Flagstaff, we went up to the top of um, a mountain. It's it's, people ski there in the winter, but it was the summer. So people run there in the summer. It's 9,000 feet. So we went up 7,000 wasn't high enough. We went up to 9,000 and uh, when I got out of the car, I accosted uh, Scott Smith, one of the runners on the team, and said, like, so, you know, what's the rationale for training this high up? And he said, it's beautiful. And, you know, that got me thinking, like, I was looking for a physiological rationale. And he's like, no, we're human beings. We like, you know, we may be yeah. professional runners, but like, we just like having fun and, you know, being in beautiful environments. And, but, you know, even that, you know, through some magic can be performance enhancing i think if like just you if you're just having fun and and i think the team dynamics are the same yeah i mean we're social creatures right and a lot of times when we're in the dark place in our training we tend to isolate because you get this three-hour run you got to do and you just got to focus on it um but if you can do it with a team it's just so much more energizing right yeah Yep. So, yeah, I think there's part of that. So let's get back to the important stuff, Matt, the, the writing, right? 
So I love what you did with this. Everybody who ever has, has listened to me at any point in time knows that one of my biggest um, foibles is uh, books about running because they always come out, you know, they're always missing two things. They're missing a good story or they're missing decent prose. And I think you've got both of those into this, uh-huh. you know, because a book about running isn't about running, right? It's about the journey. It's about the story, right? Yep. And I think you did a good job of that with the short chapters and how you build through the training. And you know, I've already recommended this book, even though it isn't released yet to uh, people for books on running, because there's very few running books that have that combination of decent prose, because you're a professional writer, and a storyline that's compelling, right? Uh, or, or compellingly told, I guess. Is what yep. Well, thank you for that. So, so did you did you do that on purpose? Uh, I mean, was what were your thoughts behind the creation there? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm an avid reader, and, and and most of what I read is fiction. Um, and so, when I even though you know I write about running and, and other endurance sports, I still, I mean, there are a million ways to write a book about running, right? And I write the sorts of books I myself would want to read as a person who would prefer a good novel. <laughs> so that's really, I guess, you know, that works to my advantage for folks like you who appreciate you know, a good story and, and decent writing is that, you know, I, I'm really just trying to write a book I myself would, would bother reading. Um, you know, it's not like everything has to be narrative to be good, but this, the whole point of this was to tell a story you know, I think runners will actually be able to take away a lot of practical stuff, but it's sort of infused in the narrative. Um, the analogy I make is like if you if you're a parent and you have a child who doesn't like vegetables, you might hide spinach in some cheesy casserole to get them to eat the spinach. So with this, like the practical, <laughs> stuff, the practical stuff is hidden inside, um, you know, a page turning story. Um, so you, you might learn more than you actually think you're learning in, in reading it. So what happened afterwards, right? I mean, how fast did you drop off this plateau? Yeah, you know, I, I thought a lot about, well, you know, I guess one thing, I've, it, it was interesting to go through this experience at 46 versus, you know, at a, an earlier time in my life. Because, you know, you just have a very different perspective at, at you know, in middle age than you do when you're, when you're younger. I just felt like I had passed through a, a looking glass and, um, and it, the whole thing was just magical. Um, and I just wanted to soak it up as much as I could um, and just sort of be there. <laughs> uh, but I also thought about, I couldn't help but think about, okay, what, what comes after, you know, cause you know, 13 weeks is passes by in, in the blink of an eye and you know, being older and I thought wiser, my, my attitude was, you know what, I'm not going to try to hold on to this. Um, and it, that became harder when I was making so much progress. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought, you know what, after this is over, when I go back home to California, I'm just going to like, you know, let it just give it away instead of like, you know, try to cling to it and, and then let the next thing come to me. I ended up as soon as I got home, I scotched that plan, signed up for another marathon, uh, because I did, I ran well in Chicago, but you know, like I said, it was a warm day, and I I was a little gimpy going into it. So I thought, you know what, maybe I could run even faster. Um, but you know, <laughs> I, was, I did the very thing I told myself I shouldn't do, which is try try to force it. And uh, I got injured again, and this time I didn't have you know the physical therapist on call, 
So it lingered. And then, so it ended up being having, having to be taken from me after all, uh, rather than giving it away. <laughs> right. So there's some lessons we never learn. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that lesson very well. Yeah. So it's a human thing though. We tend to think linearly and yep. we'll say, oh, here I am. I'm standing on this peak. So that means my next step is that peak over there. Right. You know, it's that much higher. And the yep. reality is you should look around and enjoy the view because this may be the best you ever do. <laughs> I mean, somebody should do, I bet they already do this, but somebody should do a, like a professional uh, running camp for, for, you know, avid amateurs and, uh, and have it be one of those things where, you know, people pay 50 grand, you know, rich people go in and, and get, get the Olympic treatment. Right. Yeah. It's so funny you say that. Cause I, I thought about that, like while I was there, it's like, cause I really wanted like, I was thinking I shouldn't be the only one to get to do this. <laughs> um, it would be nice if it weren't just rich people who also, cause I'm not rich. Um, I just, I happen to be a writer. I used, I used that uh, to make it happen, but yeah, I mean, it's like I, anyone who can pull off something like it, um, uh, find a way. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right, man. I'll let you get back to work. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Good luck with the book. Oh, uh, tell us where, uh, I suppose it's easy to find books, right? But give us the, the details. Yeah, um, I guess, you know, I don't know. Do they even have bookstores anymore? Um, but it definitely, uh, everywhere books are sold, you can find it. Um, you can go to my website, mattfitzgerald.org. It's all over the homepage there. <laughs> so one of the things that was funny in here is I got a pre-release copy, so they haven't um, captioned the photos yet. Uh-huh. And I was, you know, I'm reading the story, so I know all who all these people are. Right, and I was really excited to look at the pictures and say, "Okay, that's put a name to a face." But uh, they were all like captions to be added later. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I actually they didn't. The publisher didn't even send me a, a galley copy, so I, I wasn't aware of that until you just told me now. Oh. Yeah, but I could, I could, I could figure it out. It's uh, right not on. that bad, not that bad. But they seem like some good kids you were run with. Yeah, the yeah. Same, the same sort of motley crew you would expect for high performance people like that. Yeah. A lot yeah, of, uh, um, a lot of range. We didn't get into it in our conversation, but it's definitely part of the fun of the book. Is that you know, each of these runners has their own personality, and I was there long enough to to make you know establish an individual relationship with each of them. All right, man, we'll let you go. Thanks for the chat. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, my friends. Viral apocalypse story number two. This one's called The Dig. The old man kept a slow but steady pace down the gravel road. It was getting on in the day, and he needed to start thinking about finding shelter for the night. Bill, the dog, trotted about ten yards ahead as the vanguard. A small dust cloud rose behind them, marking their progress. The old man thought about that. He'd been keeping away from main roads to avoid interacting with what was left of humanity. These fire roads were easier on the feet anyhow and presented opportunities for hunting and gathering. He kept a good pace going, with his easy dog trot, walking and resting when needed. Lean and hard, he was that guy. He had always been that guy at his practice, the ultra-running doctor, driven and driving, Who could have guessed that one of those was an actual survival skill? 
He had considered a bicycle or even a scooter of some sort, but at the end of the day, the most effective way to navigate this dying and fragmented world was on foot. The strap on his sandals was wearing thin. He'd have to craft another one. There were thick, shiny calluses where the rubber straps ground against his feet day in and day out. He smiled at them. I'll be long gone before we run out of tires to salvage for sandals, he mused. He ran in a sturdy pair of shorts fashioned just above the knees. A machete was holstered at one hip, a hunting knife at the other. A rough work shirt covered by a multi-pocketed vest rode on his torso. His crossbow was slung on top of the light pack. He carried a light but strong hickory staff in one hand and a water bottle in the other. He had no need for guns. That was his kit for the apocalypse, and it had gotten him this far. And where was here, and when? He figured it was five, six years since the virus reduced the world population by 90% plus. I mean, the virus didn't do all the work. The collapse of government and infrastructure and a certain laissez-faire, every man for himself bedlam, did the rest. He figured they were probably back to Iron Age population levels. A few vestiges of community popped up in the countryside, humans as they do huddling together in fortified farms. Actually, quite a bit like Iron Age hill forts, he thought to himself. Maybe all that reading of history would come in handy in this new world. At some point, community centers of gravity would begin to aggregate, as they always did, and it would begin again. There was herd immunity now. Maybe it would be the representatives of a recently defunct government infrastructure clawing back into control. More likely, it would be a negotiation of local power centers. Tribes produce warlords, warlords produce lords, lords turned into kings. History repeats itself. But there might be a government somewhere, squirreled away in a cave, waiting for their chance to emerge and take back control of taxes and nuclear bombs. As to where he was, somewhere west of Georgia, most likely, his GPS stopped working, the solar charger had broken, he was pretty sure there was no longer an army of Chinese factory workers to make him a new one, or an internet company to deliver it if they did. Where were all those great container ships now? Washed up on derelict beaches like miserable old sea monsters? He was making his way generally southwest, towards the Gulf of Mexico. He had no plan, just kept moving. Stayed away from cities with their armies of black rats, corpses, and miasmas. A low ridge of rock cliffs and shelves ran along one side of the gravel road. A slow summer stream ran along the other, sometimes petering out into swampy ground, sometimes gouging away at the road itself from recent high-water events. The old man kept a wary eye on the rock shelf as he ran along. If there was trouble, it would come from that side. Bill the dog kept his nose in the air as well, occasionally glancing back at the old man for guidance, tongue lolling out in the summer afternoon. Bill the dog lifted his head and stopped. A vehicle had come into view up ahead on the road. They stopped moving to assess. The old man signaled to Bill to hold and lowered into a thoughtful squat. He fished into a vest pocket and carefully unwrapped a pair of glasses. 
what appeared to be a derelict truck was pulled off to the side. Didn't look like it had moved recently. Hundred yards or so back into the cliff face, he could see snatches of the ubiquitous blue tarp. He scratched his scraggly beard and dust fell from his sun-brown face. He looked at Bill, held up one hand, and said, Hold! Bill laid down in the dirt and put his head on his paws, resigned, as if to nap. Straightening up with effort, the old man began his cautious approach. The truck was encased in mud and hadn't moved in a long time. One door was canted open and the cabin floor was full of leaves. The ground had no sign of foot traffic. Probably another derelict campsite. There were lots of them in the woods. The old man slowly moved towards the cliff, checking for signs of habitation or activity as he went. It looked like there was a significant rock ledge overhang or cave here. Something in his pattern-matching brain recognized the setup. Next to a torn and crumpled pop-up cover was a standing screening table and a pile of dirt. This was some sort of archaeological dig. Not a big one, probably a local university project. The rock shelter, the screening, it all made sense. And that fitting of all the pieces together into a narrative made the old man happy. Maybe loosened his guard a bit. He dropped his pack and wandered deeper into the dig site. Towards the cliff face, under the ledge, was a dig pit. Plastic buckets, tarps, and large, meticulously dug deep trench. He squatted at the edge, peering down. The walls were tagged with the little flags, and the floor was marked off with a string grid. The floor of the pit was starting to fill up with leaves, nature ever grinding away at the works of man. Suddenly there was a flash out of the corner of his perception. Something hit him from the side with a sharp force, and he was falling. The impact, a bright flash of pain, and he lost consciousness. When he came back to the light, he sensed another's presence. The old man rolled over onto his back and propped himself up against the pit wall and assessed his situation. He felt around, moved, flexed different parts of his body testingly. Nothing broken, just had the wind knocked out of him. The pit was maybe eight feet deep with vertical walls. He could get out easily enough by digging hand and footholds in the corner. It was probably a ladder when they were working down here, but that wasn't the issue. The issue at hand was the woman crouched at the rim, silhouetted in the dying sunlight, watching him. He squinted up at her and said, Hello, my Amazonian friend. Do you have a name? No, she turned and spat. The old man pushed to a sitting position, back against the far wall. Then I'll just call you Hippolyta. Do you know who that was? She did not answer. Queen of the Amazons, he continued. For, on further perusal, she was Amazonian in nature and form. Fit, muscular, athletic under the grime that they all wore. Long brown hair tied back in a ponytail. Her bare feet brown like leather, except for one toe that didn't look good. Now what? he said. Are you alone? she asked. Yes and no, he smiled. I have a dog waiting patiently for me somewhere close by. He's a very loyal dog. And... 
I don't know why, but he likes me, and he doesn't like others. You'd probably win the fight in the end, but I think you'd lose some skin in the process. She raised her eyes and glanced around. Although, that probably isn't your biggest problem right now, he continued. You see, I'm a doctor. A vascular surgeon, as it turns out. Her eyes widened a bit. He smiled and nodded, and kept speaking in that low, soothing doctor voice of his. That toe is infected. Looks like it might have a bit of gangrene going on. Kicked a rock, running from some assholes, she said. Do you know how it ends for you? he asked. Untreated, it'll spread to the foot, the leg. Eventually you'll die of sepsis. It's not pretty. So I guess you have a choice. You can be attacked by a big dog and die a horrible death in a couple weeks. He paused and smiled again. Or I can come up there and fix that for you, and I'll make you a new pair of sandals in the bargain. What's it going to be? She looked at him hard and long. She shook her head, unfolded from her crouch, and reached for the ladder. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, another week, another episode, another opportunity. You have run like a pro through the end of yet another Run Run Live podcast episode 4-428. Done and done. Go get Matt's book. I think you'll like it. By the way, a shout out here and a thank you to Carlos the Jackal for doing the edit on this interview. My normal editor, Dimitri from Moscow, he was on holiday. Hope he's not out on a cruise. <laughs> I may have to get a new editor. I've started a new hashtag on Facebook. It's uh, long songs, hashtag long songs for the apocalypse. And these are all the great 10 minute plus jams that I listen to in the background while I'm writing. And you can find them out there. You know, we make up our games to keep ourselves sane. I'm still training. My A race in June hasn't gotten canceled yet. And I was going to cobble this race trip together with a Vancouver vacation with my wife. But she's making noises like there's no way she's getting on an airplane with me in June. Um, I haven't made my travel plans yet. Maybe this will become one of those in-and-out gorilla marathon tries that my races always seem to devolve into. My friend, my running buddy Frank, yes, the drummer for the Nays, is making noises like he might come. He was training for Vermont, and that got pushed. That was on uh, the end of May. That got pushed. It's going to be a full fall with all these races moving. It will be interesting. You'll have twice as many races with the same number of runners. And this may be the straw that breaks the camel's back for a lot of these races, and we'll see some consolidation. And we'll see that same consolidation everywhere else, that same aggregation across industries, the small and the fragile, they'll get washed out, and the big and the strong will invest and get bigger. And uh, I guess that's the cycle of life. The thing is that this type of forest clearing also creates the next wave of growth, right? When businesses see a contraction like this, it creates thousands of new entrepreneurs for the next cycle. So, hey, let's talk about Ollie. Ollie is being Ollie. He's a nutcase. He's very strong. <laughs> We're working it out. We're working it out. We're still working on it. He's almost one year old now. And he's been really good at interacting with all the new people on the trails. He doesn't attack them. 
and he immediately defaults to submissive with other dogs. And that's good because I don't think I have the upper body strength to run with him on leash all the time. And I'm sorry, I apologize for getting this one out a little late. I do appreciate you. I am quite thankful to have you in my life, even if it's a mostly one-way relationship. I've had a couple good interactions these last weeks that let me know that people are out there on the other end, and that helps. It really does, so thank you. Let me know if there is anything I can do for you. Let me know if you want to collaborate on a project. Let me know if I'm traveling to your town at some point and you want to grab a coffee. These things are all still there. Like I said, all this stuff is still there for us. The beauty is still there. The peace is still there. So work with me here. Close your eyes. Take a deep, slow breath in through your nose. Inhale, kindness. Inhale, empathy. Exhale, out your mouth. And give that kindness and empathy back to the universe. Do that a few times. Let yourself relax, even if you're out running now. We're going to be okay. Whatever happens, we can handle it. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And we'll take you out with track number six from Brian Sheff, the rock opera by the Nays, called She's a Lonely Girl. Now, Frank told me last weekend when he, Brian, and I were out social distance running, all these songs are available on iTunes, so go buy a couple. Music will keep you sane in the apocalypse. To break hands tightly tied Trinkets and beads Her culture's desperate pleas But there in her eyes I've seen my future lies And yet she's a lonely girl
side And said I could use a ride Now where do you live? Up in a trailer on Chaco Ridge And yet she's a lonely girl She's a lonely girl She's a lonely girl She's looking for a guy like me